I think it was uh, disgraceful, disgraceful, that the intelligence agencies allowed any information that turned out to be so false and fake out. I think it's a disgrace. And I say that, and I say that. And that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. That information that was false and fake and never happened got released to the public. As far as BuzzFeed, which is a failing pile of garbage, writing it, I think they're going to suffer the consequences. They already are. And as far as CNN going out of their way to build it up, it's a disgrace what took place. It's a disgrace. And I think they ought to apologize to start with. Go ahead. Go ahead. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Go ahead. From this clip, it's, you know, it's obvious to see that the fake news has become unstable. It's becoming, you know, very toxic. Um, one clear example of this is in its recent report, the, the EU Commission actively rejects the term. It says, fake news is not only inadequate, but it's also misleading because it has been appropriated by some politicians and their supporters who use the term to dismiss coverage that they find disagreeable and has thus become a weapon with which powerful actors can interfere in circulation of information and attack and undermine independent news media. So what the report says is that you know, we shouldn't be talking about fake news, but we should be talking about disinformation. Disinformation, as defined in this report, includes all forms of false, inaccurate, or misleading information designed, presented, and promoted to intentionally cause public harm or for profit. It doesn't include things like hate speech, um, incitement to violence. These are already content issues that are dealt with through existing regulation. Around the world, we're starting to see um, measures taken against disinformation, sort of legal and regulatory approaches which try to deal with the spreading of knowingly falsified information. And these have clear um, human rights implications where they deal with, where it intersects with the user's rights to freedom of expression and, and the user's privacy. I'm less interested in the, you know, condemning the broad you know, fake news debate, um, and then more interested in asking how should human rights defenders respond to this phenomenon effectively? Do we treat disinformation as a, as a kind of hysteria linked to fears over the decline of traditional gatekeepers, the, the huge increase in expression that the internet has facilitated? Or do we engage with it head on and accept that disinformation itself has human rights risks? If we don't want algorithmic fact-checkers or draconian laws, then what do we want? I wanted to start this episode by looking at how this debate is playing out in a specific country. In Singapore, a, a fake news law is currently moving through Parliament. The positive story is that you know, the government decided to open it up to public consultations and get a very wide range of input from stakeholders. The way it worked out in practice was slightly more complicated, as Kirsten Han, a local journalist and activist, explains. Society, we 
already kind of worried that there was going to be even more laws that would regulate speech in Singapore. So we were surprised actually in January 2018 to see that Shamugam was introducing a green paper on deliberate online falsehoods and that parliament was voting to convene a select committee on de deliberate online falsehoods to do public consultation and come up with a report on what the government should be doing. So it, it seemed like it was a few steps back because he was actually already saying that, you know, new laws are no-brainer, we're definitely going to have it. And then in January, instead of a bill, we see this sort of feedback process, which is actually pretty rare in Singapore. And so we we kind of thought about it and decided that we, we should participate. So we were getting people, encouraging people to send in written feedback. We sent in written feedback ourselves. And then in March, they held their open hearings and they basically invited people who had submitted written feedback to come for the open hearings. So apart from, you know, civil society groups and, uh, you know, freelance journalists like me, they also invited people from the mainstream media, uh, academics, students, and also from the big tech companies. So Facebook, Twitter, and Google were there. And Facebook in particular got, got a grilling because they appeared in front of the select committee just after the whole scandal with Cambridge Analytica came out. And so it was really difficult position for them to be in because it wasn't that hard to paint Facebook as this big tech company that was unreliable and that would not live up to its own obligations. Uh, after Facebook, um, sometime after Facebook, I was before the select committee as well with three others and the four of us were there for five hours, uh, during which one of the committee members was taking issue with a, an article that I'd written and saying that my article was misleading and I disagreed with him and said, you know, but despite the fact that we disagree, it's better that we talk about it and nobody gets sued and nobody goes to jail. And at this open hearing in Parliament, this select committee member says, not yet. And so that was kind of like the tone that I remember from this, that, you know, it's, it was long, it was big grilling, it was more like a sort of cross-examination rather than a consultation. And then... Two days after that, uh, my colleague PJ Sum, who's a historian and also managing director of New Narrative, uh, got an even worse grilling, where he was there by himself for six hours and questioned by the Law and Home Affairs Minister personally. And none of it was actually about fake news. It was about PJ's um, research into 1960s Singapore and the threats of communism there, whether it was a really legitimate legitimate threat, but it was a serious threat. Uh, and it was all revolving around that because of PJ's work, where he, based on his historical research and looking at documents, declassified documents, he said that the government had basically come up with this excuse of a sort of conspiracy, communist conspiracy in the 60s to jail their political opponents 
And that was very sensitive because it hits at the legitimacy of the government that's still in, the same ruling party that's in power today. So that kind of happened. There were six hours of this really weird sort of historical questioning where PJ wasn't allowed to answer questions with nuance. He was supposed to give yes-no answers. It was very difficult to actually untangle everything that, you know, it was, it, that was not the way to address um, a historical debate. And after that, they then, the select committee then questioned um, PJ's credentials. They sent letters to Oxford saying that you had to cr- clarify his credentials. Um, even until today, they are saying that he's lied about his credentials. Even though, you know, there was an open letter sent by academics, the Board of Project Southeast Asia at Oxford, which PJ is the coordinator of, backed him up and said that, you know, he does have a PhD in history from Oxford that was, you know, we, he went through the whole rigorous process and he got a PhD legitimately all that. In uh, around that same time, they also denied, um, the, the government denied new narratives uh, our platform permission to register a Singapore subsidiary company. So we have no legal presence in Singapore. We're not allowed to have a legal presence in Singapore because they said it would be contrary to the national interest. And then that kind of, again, brought a lot of attention to us, uh, which then went on. We, we submitted an appeal and then that kind of, we were waiting for the appeal and while we were doing that in August, we had the opportunity to go to Malaysia to meet the new slash old Malaysian Prime Minister. Uh, and we kind of felt like, you know, why not go? If you had if you had this opportunity, it's not often that you have an opportunity to meet the Malaysian Prime Minister, especially after such a landmark watershed election for Malaysia where they finally changed, had regime change. And so we were really interested to meet Mahathir at this time. And to, yeah, to just see for ourselves, you know, the sort of man that he is. We, we went, it was a pretty uneventful meeting, but when we came back to Singapore, then uh, a member of the select committee who is an MP with the ruling party, uh, pointed to PJ's Facebook post saying that he encouraged Mahathir to take leadership in Southeast Asia for the promotion of democracy, human rights, freedom of expression, and freedom of information. So he interpreted that post as PJ saying that he was inviting um, Mahathir to come and interfere in Singapore politics. And he himself didn't use the word treason, but a lot of the comments underneath his post did and that kind of unleashed these like two, three days of trolling online, calling us traitors, saying that we sold out the country. Um, there were suggestions that we should be jailed. There were suggestions that we should be executed. There was a suggestion I saw that suggested I should be dragged into the streets and had my hair cut like women in World War Two who collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, so that's, that was the sort of abuse that we had. And we decided that, you know, there was, these claims were not substantiated. It was really quite astonishing to see that a member of the select committee, and then later amplified by the 
ruling party's own social media pages, including with comments from the law minister himself, to see all these without any substantiation just be reported in the mainstream media and spread. And it seemed very much like this was precisely the sort of thing that the select committee was set up to deal with, to, to recommend, make recommendations to the government on how to deal with these things. And members of the committee themselves were kind of now perpetuating this sort of behaviour. So we decided, three of us, myself, PJ, and an activist, Jonathan, who had also gone to meet the Prime Minister, Malaysian Prime Minister, we decided to send two letters of complaint. We sent one to Charles Chong, who is the chairman of the Select Committee, to say that, look, your, your own committee members are doing this. And then we also sent a letter of complaint to the Prime Minister, Lee Sin Long, to say, look, you're the Secretary General of the People's Action Party, and your party members are doing this. Uh, we never heard back from Charles Chong, but Lee Sin Long referred the complaint to the Ministry of Home Affairs for the Minister of Home Affairs to take care of, which I find very inappropriate because the Minister of Home Affairs is Shamugam, who was named in our complaint. So essentially he sent it, the Prime Minister sent the complaint to the one of the people we were complaining about and told him to take care of it. And he issued a statement in response, uh, ignored the substance of our complaints, and and then that just kind of died down. After after that ministry statement that said they didn't want to dwell on it any further, suddenly the mainstream media stopped reporting, and the trouble went away. And so we never actually got an answer. And then after that, the select committee, in I think in the last month, they published their report. Uh, in the report, they again said that PJ had lied about his credentials. But the report also, you know, it was it was a long one that was suggesting a variety of things that could be done about on deliberate online falsehoods in Singapore. Although, you know, the report did not define deliberate online falsehoods, so we still don't know exactly what they mean and what they're talking about when they talk about deliberate online falsehoods. But it's just that things like more media literacy, more quality journalism, fact-checking, education. But among that, also new laws that would give the government power to deal with fake news that was spreading. And to you know, it says that these powers should allow the government to break the virality of online falsehoods that spread. And they should be able to break that virality within hours. So it, it sounds like we don't know the details of what these new powers would be. We've not yet seen a bill in Parliament, but it sounds like it's something that would allow the government a lot of power to to perhaps compel takedowns and to, you know, regulate what's said online and compel, you know, fast action from tech companies because they want to they want to deal with this in a matter of hours. So we're still waiting to see what the bill says. And in the meantime, while waiting, the, the government re uh, rejected New Narrative's appeal to register the company. So we're still not allowed to have a legal presence in Singapore. So that's kind of been the year that we've had. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a crazy year that we've had, but we're still waiting for this bill.
which you know I find worrying because it comes in a context of a country where freedom of expression is already you know curbed and under threat and it's it's already very problematic you know in the past it, just recently there there were two people the Jolivan who had submitted the complaint with us and an opposition party they were both already convicted of contempt of court and scandalizing the judiciary for posts that they'd written on Facebook and you know that they're still waiting for the sentencing but the maximum penalty is a fine of a hundred thousand Singapore dollars and or three years in jail so it, we're already talking about a country where freedom of expression is curbed so it's worrying to think And thanks so much for talking us through all of that and, and, and for, for working so tirelessly to promote these rights in, in a very complicated uh, environment, as it, as it, as it sounds. Um, so you've, you've given us a really good sort of sum up of where we are at the moment. We haven't, haven't quite seen um, <clears throat> the actual bill um, uh, yet. Okay. And we're waiting to sort of see what the, what the details um, of, of, of that look like. Um, but we wanted to sort of uh, dig a little bit into, into what the sort of um, what the sort of the positives of such a bill might be. I mean, you, you've obviously, uh, as you've described in your in, in, in your recount of the you know of what happened in the last year, that there's been a sort of uh, an opportunity for um, disinformation to be should be shared and, and to be sort of publicised very broadly about about yourself and, and your close colleagues. Um, do you think that there is a is a is a, is a problem with uh, disinformation more broadly online, and is there a role that the government should play in sort of trying to trying to curtail that? I mean, there there is disinformation online in Singapore, definitely, but we've not seen anything really that big or serious that that I know of. Like, certainly, it's not like Myanmar where the context is very different, the sort of tech-savvy and media literacy between Myanmar and Singapore is very different, and Myanmar is having huge problems. Uh, Singapore is not at that level. Yes, there is this information that we should address, but it's very problematic to then say that the government should be the arbiter of it because it gives them so much power to then define and regulate what's said online uh, in a context where we already know that the government is willing to exercise powers to curb free speech. And, you know, like, I've seen, I've seen, you know, with this past few months that, you know, the, the government themselves are not above making unsubstantiated claims that then get spread. And get spread very fast because, you know, unlike... Unlike an ordinary citizen, members of the government have a lot of reach and power to make things spread. So, you know, the mainstream media picking up faithfully the things that they write on Facebook, that would not happen with just an ordinary citizen, usually. But with the government, it's parroted because we do have a problem with press freedom as well. We are on the World Press Freedom Index, 151 out of 180. So... I don't know if there would be a sort of silver lining because, you know, my experience seems to suggest, yes, we should have something that would deal with this information. But then I also wonder if there is a law, what reassurances Singaporeans would have that it would apply to the government. 
themselves, or would they use it on themselves? No, absolutely. This is a really interesting point and one that often gets um, uh, sort of overlooked in this, this discussion: the, the, the role of uh, government and other and other sort of state actors to uh, to promote um, uh, knowingly falsified information as well. I'd love to get a bit of a sense of from you of uh, what civil society strategy has been around the sort of the green paper and the and the development of the of the bill. Like, what what's the mood been like, and, and who's been engaging? So at the beginning, when the green paper was first uh, put forward, and they were doing consultations, uh, there was a small group of us. Uh, as almost always, the Singapore civil society is always a very small group of people who are very very stretched and not at all resourced. Um, a small group of us did these things called democracy classrooms, where we invited people to come in and for two hours talk about the issue of fake news and sit in groups and discuss. And and then, you know, off the back of that, we then encouraged them to write into the select committee. Because it wasn't a, a very long consultation period, so we felt that we needed to do more to kind of prompt people to take the time to think about it and then prompt them to actually write in, otherwise people might not write in. So we did that and then we went to the select committee and I think it was kind of disappointing because during the democracy classroom sessions, I had come across people who said, what is the point of doing this because the the ruling party is not interested in listening. So why are we doing this? Why should we even bother? Um, is it there were people who were afraid to to submit, or people who were afraid to put their names to things, which is very common in Singapore, the self censorship and the kind of fear that people have. And so we were saying in these classrooms, you know, it's worth it's worth participating anyway. This is an important thing to be doing. We should be doing it. Um, and this is a legitimate process, so you shouldn't be in trouble for participating in a legitimate process. And then we went in for the select committee and then, you know, were grilled for five hours, six hours. And that was just disappointing because then it came out and then there were the people who were afraid were like, I told you that, you know, I told you it wouldn't go well. And what can you say to that then? You know, it kind of proved them, it proved to some people that there was something to fear, which I was disappointed in. Um, Absolutely. So since then, it, it's gone a bit quiet. Like, the report came out and there was not much that was said, not much that was done by civil society, mostly because um, it's such a small group of people in Singapore and they're so stretched. The, a lot of the groups that work on... A lot of the people, not really groups that work on these issues, also work on a bunch of other issues. So it's really difficult to proactively sort of organise. Absolutely. And, and what, what advice could you offer to sort of other activists or sort of human rights defenders uh, who are facing uh, the introduction of fake news laws? Um, I think it depends very much on that country's sort of context and like what you can do. So for example, in Singapore, there's not a huge amount of avenues in terms of what we could do. So we mostly just try to get Singaporeans talking and aware so that there would at least be something on the record and at least some conversation. Because for in, in like our context, for example, now they bring a bill, uh, no matter what we do, the bill will pass. 
because just just on the sheer super majority of the ruling party in the in parliament, even if every single member of the opposition party came out to oppose the bill, the bill would still pass. Um, so in this context, it's hard for me to then make recommendations for other countries because sure. I don't really know what to do in my own context. Yeah. Absolutely. That was Kirsten Han, a Singaporean journalist and activist who runs a non-profit media company, New Narrative. I wanted to zoom out a little bit in this conversation and, and get a broader perspective. And to do so, I interviewed Fanny Hidvegi, the European policy manager at Access Now. Here's our conversation. Um, so the, uh, we, we, know, we appreciate that um, Access has just uh, finished a report um, on the EU uh, uh, communicate on uh, disinformation. I wondered if you could give our listeners a quick sort of overview um, of, of that and, and your sort of findings um, uh, in that report. Absolutely. The report was written by three organizations together, uh, Liberties, which is the Civil Liberties Union for Europe, EDRI, European Digital Rights, and Access Now, jointly. The report is titled Informing the Misinformation Debate, and it directly responds as a re in, a, in the form of a report to the European Commission's um, fake news and online disinformation work, uh, which is linked to the high-level expert group. They published their report back in the spring um, or late, late winter, so it's been a while. But um, we wanted to respond in a thorough way and also to reflect on some of the updates and developments that happened since. First of all, the report... Uh, the, the basic question, and I think that's that's where we should start, is the actual definition and problem definition, and and what we are talking about here when we when we refer to quote unquote fake news, which is a term that we really try to avoid using, actually. And 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 why is that? It's because. As long as we use that term, it doesn't really get us very far to understand the actual issue and the human rights implications. And we believe uh, that the approach also David Kay, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, took on this to stick to definitions and, and concepts we've been using for many years, if not decades, such as disinformation and propaganda. That's a more useful way to talk about the underlying problems and the human rights concerns. So let's sort of take, take a little bit of a step back and, and sort of look at the bigger picture here. Um, where do you think this sort of broader sort of public hysteria um, is coming from around uh, fake news or, as you say, sort of disinformation? Well, the hysteria definitely linked to the 2016 US elections. And that, that seems clear. And, um, and I guess the Brexit situation was linked to, but I think the origin, the origin was definitely the U.S. election. And hysteria is a, is a good term because um, before that, the, the problem had already been there, but it got a very different exposure and also reaction from governments, which is alarming. 
And do you think that there's uh, um, any you know, increase or decrease in the actual sort of spread of disinformation or is this um, just a sort of a political uh, token that, that, uh, that particular um, politicians and, and members of the um, uh, public life are using um, to discredit particular opinion? The real, the real issue, I think, is exactly that we don't have a lot of evidence about how, how the, how the, how there's an increase, but also not just in terms of numbers, but most importantly, the impact of such information. And as a sort of human rights defenders, um, I, th I think it's you know it's also always important to sort of understand: are there particular ways in which um, these these different issues are actual threats? Um, are you seeing any examples where um, actual you know the spread of disinformation is a, is a threat from a human rights perspective? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, it's important to emphasize that just because we disagree with the hysteria that is that surrounds this question, that doesn't mean that there are not clear human rights uh, implications about it, um, both in terms of what impacts the disinformation has, but also how governments are reacting to it. And uh, just going back for one second about to why I prefer using the disinformation term is because that gets not uh, gets us not only to this human rights concern that I already mentioned, but also the intentionality and how and who actually disseminates the information. Because if you if you look at if you look at the definition or the problem, then we use the term in a way that describes that it's an intentional dissemination of information that is designed to have a specific impact, including political or other um, societal impacts. So obviously the EU has done a lot of work on this issue um, back in April, obviously the communique, and, and now um, uh, just uh, a few days ago um, when, we, when we were recording this podcast, um, we had the Code of Conduct um, come in, in, into action with a number of key players as, as, as signatories. Um, what, what do you um, think of the EU's as approach uh, to this issue? What are the, what are the, what are the, sort of the good points and, and the bad points? So our, our report that you already mentioned will um, will reflect on almost every segment of the communique. We're trying to get some reaction already about the code of practice as well, but the main focus remains the the communication. And there are some parts which we agree with, but our overarching message is that what we recommend that all and any measures to tackle the spreading of disinformation online must be in line with international human rights law and to respect and promote the right to freedom of expression and opinion, but also the right to privacy and personal, personal data protection and non-discrimination. One, one key approach of the European Union lately, which is not only about disinformation, but generally speaking, any any form of, I would say, content regulation is um, opening the door for generalized content monitoring tools, uh, which we call upload filters in the copyright context, but we see it elsewhere too. The European Commission just released uh, a proposal to prevent the dissemination of terrorist content online. 
um, and uh, it's it's a very recent uh, publication of proposal. I just I think they just published it maybe one or two weeks ago, and it's it's also a typical example of how political actions are driving these supposedly professional conversations. And as the European elections are coming up, uh, the EU is in favor of uh, implementing fast solutions that only look like a solution, but they lack proper evidence and problem definition. Absolutely, and and as you've quite rightly said, there's a, there's a, a huge sort of uh, sort of um, uh, increase in the pace of developments around around content regulation, particularly sort of you know harmful content as well as uh, as well as illegal content at the the national, regional, and and and, and global level. Um, how do these fears around sort of fake news um, sort of interplay with other uh, other issues around identity in the digital age? Sort of questions of um, attribution, cybersecurity, cybercrime, um, bigger concerns or, or different concerns that governments are trying to trying to deal with. Do you see these uh, as sort of interlinked and related issues, or are they seen as uh, distinct issues? I definitely see a connection. But I'm not sure if the if the Commission or other lawmakers are looking at them in a systematic manner. The uh, the the fake news or misinformation communication of the of the Commission has a segment on anonymity and let's say let's call it attribution, not not in the cybersecurity sense, but um, one of our recommendations is definitely to avoid any any measures that would undermine anonymity or pseudo-anonymity online, and that is a clear safeguard and necessary tool for the internet to remain open and to respect not only privacy but freedom of expression. So there's definitely um, that question. And uh, in terms of uh, attributions, I guess the the link is um, in in our cybersecurity work. We uh, advocate for uh, standards uh, for any form of attribution uh, that should be developed with a broad range of stakeholders to develop a common understanding of attribution and with an agreement on evidentiary standards and norms. And definitely this is the approach we would be in favor rather than creating a centralized organization. And I think this can, can be applied in the fake news conversation as well. So we are we are uh, advocating against any measure that would undermine anonymity online. So how how do you think um, human rights defenders have uh, have done in in this debate? Have we have we done a good job in in, in trying to make the case for a human rights approach uh, to to disinformation? Oh, that's a good question. If we, uh, maybe maybe the answer is not because looking at looking at the proposals, um, it seems to me that that our we, we have probably not done a great job because the proposals are not getting any better. Um, one interesting approach we've tried to do, and and that's access now's most important. Um, 
conclusion from the from the disinformation debate at least in the european union for sure is to look at the online privacy angle of this question when when the facebook cambridge analytica scandal broke earlier this year it was quite interesting for us internally because at the at the very first moment we were not we didn't fully understand why this is such a big deal because we've been working on these topics for a long time when in fact it was of course a big deal in terms of shaping the public opinion and the momentum it created for all of us who, who work on on online privacy but also on freedom of expression and what we what we came up with as a as maybe a partial solution is that if you look at spreading this information online it's possible because there are not appropriate privacy standards against micro targeting in social media and in the online context in general and there's an ongoing reform in the european union about the e-privacy directive mm. Uh, which um, is now under reform and there's a proposal to update it to the digital reality of, of 2018 and hopefully the future and to create a regulation, re, a regu, a regulation that will ensure online privacy, that will give uh, protections against online tracking and also that would ensure the confidentiality of electronic communications. And we believe that governments should regulate in that sense to provide those safeguards rather than trying to regulate different forms of speech online and to risk that um, any measure they take can, can uh, lead to some form of censorship. So we've explored a little bit the sort of the, the free expression challenges with this debate with over censorship and uh, you know um, over over um, regulating content. We looked at some of the sort of privacy implications around attribution and and, and challenges there. Um, so what is this? What is a human rights respecting um, uh, response? Um, is, is there is there a sort of a framework that we can apply or or a, or a particular sort of strategy that we can deploy to to ensure that these approaches um, are in line with um, international standards? Yes, I would. I would start with a general idea, an approach I, I like to take when we're talking about any form of regulation of content, and then I'll I'll go into the recommendations we've developed for the specific um, uh, disinformation uh, communication of the of the commission. So generally speaking. I think one uh, one useful way to look at it is there are many different forms of content online and some of it is there's almost zero ambiguity around its uh, unlawfulness or illegality let's say when we talk about child pornography there's an app an, an absolute global standard and and understanding of how that material is illegal and if we put that on the scale there's let's say terrorist content next next to to that which is more or less clear except with the, some of the exceptions when a few governments are trying to label let's say even human rights defenders or political dissidents opponents as terrorists or extremists so that gets a little bit more 
uh, ambiguous if if it is a, a terrorist content and therefore uh, illegal. And further down on that scale, we can talk about defamation, hate speech. So, so topics that are way more contextual and where we lack that common understanding and global standard. So the way I look at it is that the more the more and uh, more ambiguity arises around the illegality of a content, the more safeguards there must be in place against their takedown or regulation. Does that, does that make sense the way I describe it? Absolutely. Um, so one challenge is that um, by... By, by setting that as a, as a particular strategy that we'll see a greater increase in the in the number of governments um, who uh, create uh, um, legislate to say that disinformation is illegal um, uh, what would be your what would be the sort of response to that as you've seen that happen in the past I I believe and I and I completely agree that it is uh, it is a problematic approach there are countries that um, ban the spreading of uh, false information or rumors and the risk uh, there is there is that it can easily lead to measures that the governments only try to suppre- suppress the information they just disagree with absolutely i mean we, we we've seen that so um in, in two very different cases one malaysia we uh, have a fake news act which is still on the books um even given the the, the change in government there um and then we see the 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 the, the french um uh, approach um which is very much around um ele- dis- spreading of disinformation three weeks prior to um an election um we have different sort of um uh, t- tactics being played by governments here. One is um, a, a fully new uh, piece of legislation which tries to deal with the, sort of the, the, the broad issue um, of disinformation. And in, 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 the, in the French case, a very specific piece of legislation which is being updated to bring it uh, to to, uh, to the 21st century and 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 dealing with the challenges that that um, digital technologies poses uh, within sort of a fair and um, uh, a, a fair election. Um, do you see um, either of those as more problematic um, or less problematic, or, and, and what would be a sort of a, uh, a human rights approach uh, to dealing with those challenges? I mean, out of those two, I believe that the Malaysian approach is definitely more problematic. I um, I've, I've heard about the French. Um, update of that law as well, but uh, we haven't issued any detailed analysis, but I believe that there could be could be a form when it's limited to a specific period or specific, specific situation when, when it could be acceptable, but again, I haven't um, looked at it in details, but I think it's quite interesting if we, if we remember the reaction of the French press around the presidential election when there was some um, leaked information in that period where there's usually a um, um, non-reporting um, obligation and the French press just um, 
decided voluntarily not to jump on those leaks and have last minute impact on the election based on information that were not um, there was not a lot of evidence around the source and and the validity of that information which I which I find quite interesting and in strike con- uh, contrast of of the American media in relation to to the US election for sure for sure um so what one one final question from me really is um this whole debate um which is very much sort of uh, politically driven and 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 deals with you know um sort of particular uh, interests um uh is something that's very new in in certain ways but very old in others about sort of understanding through critical thinking whether something is real or not and being be able to um, independently assess uh, the the independence of, of, of that information and actually drive your own conclusions from it. Um, do you think that as a sort of a practical way of dealing with with this issue is to um, disregard the debate entirely, or do we need to constructively uh, engage and shape the conversation? Um, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on that final final point. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's not the right approach to completely ignore the debate because, as, as I said, the debate has a lot of uh, important human rights questions and we are engaging and that's one of the reasons why we decided to to respond to this uh, communication. And we developed a few a short list of basic recommendations that could be applicable to any measure not just in the European Union. I already mentioned a very basic uh, um, line to to respect international human rights law, but we also point to the need uh, for independent research and more evidence on this question and the benchmarking criteria. We also reflect a little bit on fact-checking mechanisms and what uh, advantages they have, but also what problems they ca- there can uh, there can arise if they create an institutional fact-checking mechanism that could uh, reinforce some conflict of interests or bias. Uh, our report also mentions that. Uh, these measures cannot lead to the manipulation of the electorate or to silencing any minority voices. Uh, I already touched on the e-privacy question, which if we look at from a a more broader lens, uh, it's just high time to address the business model of online manipulation through appropriate data protection, privacy and competition law. Uh, I already talked a little bit about to avoid undermining anonymity. And finally, I would like to mention the question of automated means. As we talked a little bit about um, upload filters, but uh, as, as all these proposals coming out lately push technology companies to do more, we don't know what that more is, but we just want them to do more and we open the door for them to create automated uh, algorithmic uh, and even artificial intelligence tools that would that would be a general monitoring of content online which is both a freedom of expression and a privacy violation that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Kirsten Han and Fanny Hidvegi. And I'd like you to look out for our next episode, the final in our three-part series on identity, which comes out next week. Until next time, good
Goodbye.